Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Matt D. Fathery, Lee Boyd, and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world. That's right. That's not our usual jingle. Welcome to FNO InsureTech and another exciting and thrilling edition with your hosts, Rob Beller and Lee Boyd. Lee Boyd in. Hey, Lee, you're there. I'm, I'm here. How's it going today? Good. Why are we playing that music? Well, it's because we were talking about the newest book that I'm reading uh, by Curtis Jackson, also known as 50 Cent. Yeah. And, and do you like it? Is it a good book? I, I enjoy it. I started it yesterday about halfway through, and it is an exciting read. It's, I, I don't know what I expected. I guess I kind of thought it'd be more of like a, a bio book about him, but it's really about his business practices and, and the way he looks at things. It's actually really good. I've taken away some, some pretty good business lessons from it. Give us a business lesson that might be pertinent to today's guest who we'll introduce right after that. Well, that's a good one. I would maybe say, one, don't be afraid, right? Don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be afraid to get out there and meet people. Don't be scared and held back. Go for it. Jump in. Believe in yourself. That's one of the best lessons, I think. And, and I think that that's a, not a bad description of our guest today. We have on with us today a returning guest who's become quickly become one of our favorite guests and people, Martha Noteras from Brewer Lane. Yeah, Martha is a extremely intelligent person. Everybody in the industry knows her, it seems like, uh, but she really gets to talk to some of the neatest startup companies out there and looks at them and sees who is worth investing in and who would fit within her portfolio. She's a wealth of knowledge, and I can't wait to ask her some questions. You don't usually think that Martha Noteris would have much in common with Curtis Jackson. However, she is known as an incredibly intelligent and astute investor and has had a long track record of success previous at XL Innovate and now at Brewer Lane. I think today we'll really get a little bit of insight into what she's looking for. And I have a couple of extra questions up my sleeve. I'm curious if she'll answer. And if you are interested in what a VC does, what they think about, what crosses their mind, uh, there's no better episode to listen to than this one. I'll say that right up front. And we're honored and privileged to have Martha on with us. She is a leader in her field and very well spoken. And we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did recording it. So without further ado, here is our interview with Martha Noteras from Brewer Lane. Hey, everybody. We are here with a returning guest, a celebrity in the InsureTech world, I think it's fair to say, and I know that she'll poo-poo that. Martha Noteras from Brewer Lane is with us again. She was with us earlier this year to talk about uh, um, COVID and the effect on the InsureTech marketplace and ecosystem. And today, she's back with us, just 
just Martha today. One of our favorite guests of all time. Welcome back, Martha. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I wanted to start off today's podcast by you giving us a little bit of history about yourself. You know, what do you do? Uh, but I can't tell you, I bet over the past five or six podcasts, your name has come up and every one of our guests says, oh, it's Martha. She's she's a genius. She's wonderful. She's all over the industry. I just wanted you to kind of give us a little bit about why does everybody in the industry know you? It's a mystery to me. <laughs> I'm kind of shy. don't really have much to say. And uh, never talked to any entrepreneurs or other VCs, so I I, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but seriously, folks. Yeah, but seriously though. <laughs> I I suspect that it's because I've been really in InsureTech since InsureTech was a thing, and that was starting in 2015 with Excel Innovate. I think early on we were in there. There were a couple of DVCs. And then suddenly we turned around and the traditional VCs started getting interested in insure tech. And now there are a lot of people who are very serious uh, insurance, both insurance companies, but also uh, VCs across the board who are seeing insure tech as an important subset of fintech. I think I was right place, right time. And I, I also have been known to uh, travel around to a few conferences in my time when we used to do that sort of thing. I have two questions for you. First is, tell us, everybody's wondering, what, what's your background? How did you get to that point several years ago where you said this insure tech thing is a thing that we should be in? Tell us, tell us about your background, where you came from and how you got here. Sure. Um, I actually came into InsureTech because I had been an investor. I bought out Risk Management Solutions, RMS, when I worked for the Daily Mail, which you probably think of as a gossip rag. But in fact, I spent 15 years building up their business information group, mm -hmm. investing in data and analytics. And one of our most successful investments was risk management solutions. Through that business, which I sat on the board of for 10 years, I really got to know a lot more about the ways that insurance companies make decisions and also their blind spots so that risk management solutions really was created because insurance companies used to give away catastrophe coverage, earthquake coverage, right. alongside their property and casualty. And then when they realized that when you have a catastrophe, it costs you a lot of money and it can even be a capital <laughs> event, right. they realized they really should understand that risk better. Mm -hmm. And when Tom Hutton, who had been the CEO of RMS and whom I had negotiated against for several months in acquiring that company, when he went off to start Excel Innovate, he called me first to say, you want to come along? And that's really how I got in to InsureTech before we knew exactly that that's what we were going to invest in. We knew we wanted to invest in smart entrepreneurs. We just didn't realize how big the ecosystem would grow and how quickly. At that early point, sounds like that knowledge of the insurance industry was really helpful to you. Like you said, knowing what their, not only their blind spots, but probably what their pain points are. But what was probably interesting was how can technology help with that? 
and and therefore this marriage becomes insurtech. Is that kind of how it happened? Well, I think that's right, because I think that part of it comes down to where the pain points are within insurance, reinsurance, brokerages, and then even as you think about the customers of the insurers in terms of the consumers and the businesses. So I think uh, in some ways there's sort of a lot of pain. Sometimes it is the same problems that is causing pain on both sides. And some of those things can be like how long decisions are taking. And an example of that is that in life insurance, I think the average life insurance policy on a traditional basis takes something like eight to 12 weeks to turn around. And I am sure that nobody was happy about that from the life agents who are waiting for their commission to the life insurance companies who want to book those policies and certainly to the consumer who basically doesn't even want to get involved because it's so difficult. And so I think that when you see pain points like that that occur in various parts of the chain, then those are definitely pain points that are worth going after. Let's understand kind of level set here. What do you do? I mean, everybody who's not a VC kind of looks at VCs and says, yeah, they're, they're people that invest money in companies. And I guess ultimately that's kind of what you do, but tell us what you do and and what Brewer Lane does. I'll start with Brewer Lane. We are investing in FinTech and InsureTech. We really invest across the full range of Insure tech. So we we look at life, PNC, health, asset management, and we really think about all of those lines of business within insurance. There are plenty of pain points in there, and there are plenty of companies that are addressing those pain points. We are focused on Series A and B, so we are looking for companies that have product market fit, the beginnings of traction. It's something more than an idea. In terms of what I do as a VC, I guess there really are three things that I spend my time doing. The first one is coming up with the investment theses to say, where do we want to invest? Which pain points are solvable and are big enough problems to make for a really interesting business? The second one is meeting with venture capitalists who have deals, but most importantly, with entrepreneurs who are in the process of starting up their businesses and expanding their businesses and are thinking about how they want to capitalize the business and who they can find who has both money and a way to add value around the board table. And I think that that combination of money and expertise, whether that expertise is in building companies or in sharing network contacts or in looking at things sometimes in a different way to see opportunities beyond even what the entrepreneur is imagining, I think that those are really key issues. And then that really leads into the third point, which is doing good deals. And when we think about this, (laughs) what it means is finding the right company, but also 
finding the right company that is at a stage where you can reach an agreement on valuation. And then as a venture firm, you can get enough of the equity to make a real difference when that company is successful. So the reward end of it, if you will. Well, and it is, it's, it's the reward end of it for everyone around the table so mm-hmm. that there is, there is a very collaborative effort among the entrepreneurs and every single set of venture funders so that you really are looking for something a little different from each of your investors. And then, yes, exactly. And then we all live happily ever after. That's the <laughs> ending of it. Martha, I'm very interested in what goes on in the life of the company you are investing in. We've spoken with you before, and we've spoken with many VCs before, and we talk about what are you looking for in a company, how do you pick a company, but I'm very interested in once you determine that you're going to invest in a company and you invest, what happens to their culture, their ecosystem? Do, do things change or do things just continue on as always? I don't think that you really look for a change in the company because you have capital. I think that what the changes that you would see certainly would be an expansion where you are the the startup has presented as part of their fundraising a plan and then they go into very strong execution mode. And so from the first time that a VC meets a startup Over time, when you go to visit the offices, you expect to recognize fewer and fewer people. So that you definitely have an expansion in terms of the team, not necessarily always a huge expansion of the management team, which is the primary interface between the company and the VC. And then I think that the other places that you see a change for those companies is not only in the expansion of the people and of the commitments that they're able to make in terms of you know hiring more developers, doing something faster. The other place that there is probably some change is, so now we fast forward and the startup has just crushed their first set of milestones and their first silo of operations. And now they're really thinking about what other markets should we be thinking about? And that is a place where they might come back to their VC board and talk about and propose, for example, several different directions that they could go in, or they might be recommending a specific direction but always with reference to how we came up with this decision to go after that new part of the market. And so that would be an area where they would be looking to leverage the experience and the insight of the venture investors. So whenever a VC invests in a company that maybe is a startup company, they don't have a board or anything like that, does the VC always go in and set up a board with like-minded individuals who can help that company progress forward? So generally speaking, I would say that it is the entrepreneurs who set up the board. And actually, Mark Suster has an excellent series on Medium on the topic of startup boards. And normally, as you 
think about a board, you have the founders having representation on a board. You have the investors having a certain amount of representation, and that normally depends on who led a given deal, how much money they have invested in the company. And then sometimes you have independent board members who might be people who haven't made any investment in the company. They might often get options or something like that, but they haven't made their own capital investment in the company, but they might have serious expertise in an area that the company wants to build out where they are looking for someone beyond just an advisor, but somebody who can really help them shape the company in order to reach into a new market, for example. I want to ask you a question about what gets you excited. What gets Martha Noteris excited? You said that one of the things that you do, Brewerly, and I'm going to paraphrase here, is that you kind of, or in general as a VC, you think about where should we be putting our money? What's happening and where do we want to go? So is what gets you excited when a company comes along that fits into that notion that you have? Or is it when something comes along that you hadn't thought about? What gets you excited? Now, this this is a really good question, and um, it's something I was thinking about just before we started here, which is, at the moment, I'm thinking a lot about companies, insurtechs, that are reaching into the automated underwriting space, underwriting segmentation, and really understanding some of those dynamics about how insurance companies can make better decisions at the beginning of their process that lead to better outcomes as they, you know, at at their bottom line. And I think that that is a specific thesis that I'm meeting several companies around, our team is meeting several companies around. And then the other thing that I love about what you just said is what about when people come to you with a big idea that is something you haven't thought of? And I love that too. I think that it is, I am not only looking for people who feed into an idea that I've had, I am very much looking for an entrepreneur that has sufficient insight And that might be from experience they've had in insurance. It might be from experience they've had in technology. You know, sometimes it's from experiences they've had that they have extracted conclusions from, even though the experiences aren't something that you and I would say, oh, yes, that's obvious that A would lead to B. And I think that some of those big ideas of what can I really do to change the way that insurance happens. Those are things that are of a lot of interest right now. At Brewer Lane, we do tend to look at full stack and infrastructure. And then we also look at data and analytics companies, particularly around risk. So I think that there are a lot of hooks we have into the market. Mm -hmm. And I just love talking to entrepreneurs. I love the originality of theses. And I also think that an entrepreneur is really a unique set of skills, has a unique set of skills, whether that's all held in one person or whether it's distributed across a founding team, because you do need to be a visionary, but then you also need to be incredibly granular to be able to execute against that vision. Oh, and you have to embrace a certain level of risk if you're going to be an entrepreneur. 
And I think that that makes for a very appealing combination. And I always know that those are going to be interesting conversations. I think that what's happened, what VCs have created, and I don't know the whole history of of exactly where they came from, but when when I was a young man and, and if one was an entrepreneur, basically went to the bank and you said, can I get a loan? That's entirely changed in the VC world. And you guys, I think that you enable creativity that could have never happened in the past. There just weren't the resources available. Is that how you see it? That you really play a vital role in bringing whole new ideas to fruition? Well, I think that is true. The capital from the VC markets enables certain ideas that might have, maybe people could have gone to get a bank loan, or I think that friends and family was traditionally a way that people Correct. also were able to raise money, but uh, which obviously would depend on your having the kinds of friends and family who have money. <laughs> and therefore, I think that to some extent, VC can help uh, even that out. But I think that part of it is the scale of ambition so that while you might think of, well, I'll take a second mortgage on my home and that will enable me to at least quit my day job and work on this full time. If you really are looking, as I think we have to today, to say, how can I scale this idea up and scale it up quickly enough that I can take advantage of the market opportunity that exists today that market opportunity might not exist in a couple of years. So I need to build my operation quickly enough to start that land grab. So mm-hmm. I think that that is definitely part of what is going on in terms of trying to get enough capital to move quickly enough in order to take the hill. I think the other thing, as we think about how VC has changed over time, is that we actually are at a time that starting a company is a lot cheaper than it used to be. And AWS is a huge portion of this in terms of you no longer have to buy compute power. You can have variable access to a huge amount of compute power because Amazon is providing it. Now you have to pay for it, but you're paying for it on a variable basis. And I think that 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 creates opportunities and it particularly creates opportunities in some of the kinds of businesses that we like to invest in, in terms of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and CAPE is a good example of that where that the ability to analyze imagery and extract data from imagery depends on a huge amount of compute power that that a startup would not be able to afford, but AWS enables. So I think that that is part of what's happened that makes VC even more relevant. Venture's been around for a long time, but the number of firms have really exploded. I want to ask you, what was your last deal you did and why? So the last deal that Brewer Lane did is actually, it hasn't been announced as of the date that we're recording this, but I'm going to go with your assurances that you've got a little delay. You bet. It was in the health insurance space. Okay. And it's a data and analytics business that relies on artificial intelligence to better understand 
Now, this is where it gets a little tricky in terms of how much I'm going to explain about this company. But Uh basically, it's an artificial intelligence provider into the health insurance space. And it's our first investment in health insurance, which I think is going to be an area that we continue to look at. Sure. One of the things that we really like about the business is not only do we think they have very clever technology that is better than what people are using in the market today, they're solving a problem that health insurers know that they have. The tools that health insurers are using to solve that problem today are suboptimal. This is a new tool. This is a new way to solve the problem. And they have gotten tremendous response from health insurers. So from our point of view as investors, we like it when the market tells us that the company is on to a good thing because we love smart entrepreneurs, but smart entrepreneurs who are delivering a solution that resonates with the market, you know, that's nirvana. Uh Sometimes you have one, sometimes you have the other. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, So whenever you were looking to invest in this, did the COVID situation push you to want to invest in this more? Did it have any effect on you? That's a good question. In this particular case, we actually think that there is upside from COVID built into this company. Yes. Interesting. But we started talking to this company, I would say, just before we realized, we as a a country realized how bad COVID was. So we've had a courtship here. There you go. I want to ask you a question about risk. You guys are coming in and you're, I mean, being a VC, I would think is pretty risky, isn't it? I'm sure you're trying to mitigate that as much as you possibly can, but you're investing in relatively young companies, many of whom have never made a penny. Profitability may be off in the distance. How do you deal with that risky aspect of the business? What you're looking to do is balance risk and reward. You are always looking for companies where you believe that if you invest this money, there is a very serious upside um, and that you will be able to make a significant amount of money. In terms of mitigating that risk, a couple of ways. Part of it is choosing to invest in teams that you really believe in, whether that's their past experience, their past track record in terms of selling a business or having entrepreneurial experience of some kind. I think that you also decrease risk when you invest closer to things that you know so that you can make a better analysis of them. And then I think that obviously you, in some ways, you decrease risk by making sure that the group of investors makes sense so that this is a company where you're entering and the other investors are likely to make the same kinds of decisions that you will make, maybe with different points of view, but you want to make sure that you're co-investing with other investors who are likely to also be willing to be in it for the long haul until the company truly recognizes its full potential and whatever kinds of exits. I would think that if others are interested too, that that would kind of give you some reassurance. It does give you reassurance. I think it's a funny balance of wanting to be in the deals that other people also want to be in, which is a reaffirmation that this is a good deal. 
but also wanting to make sure that you can get in at valuations that you feel are appropriate for the life stage of the company. And I think that that's always the balance. It's even a balance for the entrepreneur, where especially between the first and second round of a company's life, the question is, how much does it matter what markup you get on your next valuation? And on one hand, it makes a difference in terms of dilution for all of the existing shareholders. On the other hand, nobody gets prizes for interim valuations. All that matters is what you exit at. Well, so with all that said, I have to ask the question, have you ever invested in a a company that failed and didn't turn out? And if so, what did you learn from it? (laughs) Oh, this is harsh. (laughs) (laughs) This is it, Martha. We've been working up to this. Come on now. Yes. Okay. I have invested in companies where they failed to thrive. Okay. They didn't grow fast enough to support ongoing venture money going in. And we had to take the company to auction and found a good home for it, but didn't get anything like the venture returns that we would like. Wow. So what are you trying to do whenever you invest venture funds? You're going to try to grow the company so you get X rate of return and another venture company comes in and purchases it. Is that right? Usually the way that it'll work. So for example, if we go in at series A and maybe we lead series A, then at the next round, 12 to 18 months later, usually you'd be looking at raising a series B and you would be looking for a new venture capitalist to come in and lead the series B. And -hmm. leading would normally mean they put the largest amount of money in and they take a board seat. And then the existing Series A and prior investors generally invest their pro rata amounts so that they keep their proportionate percentage of the company. So that that's not the exit. That's just interim. That's just ongoing fundraising. And then in terms of what happens specifically with insurtechs in terms of the outcomes, you look at some astonishing outcomes like Assurance IQ, which sold to Prudential for you know $2.5 billion plus another billion dollar earnout. That is one path which an incumbent buys an insurtech because of the capability that the insurtech can deliver to the incumbent. So there you are potentially getting paid not just, for example, for the clients that the company, that the startup has delivered to date, but also to the value that the incumbent can recognize by spreading that entire, that capability across their entire internal base. So I think that's one outcome. Another outcome And this is more similar to what you just referenced, but another outcome would be after the venture capital, growth capital might come in um, at series B or C, and ultimately you might get bought out by a private equity firm. Now, I think that the private equity is going to be very appropriate for companies that are profitable, 
So generally, mm. private equity is looking right. to use the cash flow in order to finance debt. So there are some insure techs that will fall into that category. You know, the loss making ones will not necessarily fall into that category. And then I think that the other aspect in terms of how you exit is the IPO market. And I think one of the things we're seeing is that the IPO market, despite COVID-19, still appears to be vibrant. And we're starting to see insurtechs dip into that market. So I think there we'll, we'll see how many of the insurtechs that are out there right now are real candidates for that business. And it is probably the companies that get referred to as unicorns that have private valuations over a billion dollars who are the likely candidates there. But I think that we will see whether that is a venue for a lot of exits or for at least a select few exits, which then keeps everyone else's hopes up that they too will be one of the ones that can get out there into the public markets. And do you see the public markets being useful more for the direct-to-consumer type insurers, online insurers, than for somebody who says creating tools like CAPE as an example? I think that there are, you know, if you look at things that are pub are traded publicly, so Goosehead is really in the brokerage end of insurance, tech enabled, and then SelectQuote, which went public relatively recently, is really much more in the lead gen side, mm -hmm. which is a tool used by a broad range of insurers. The place that I left out, and I think that many of the data and analytics and even infrastructure plays could very well end up in the broader insurance ecosystem in terms of companies that are already in the business of supplying technology and data to the insurance industry. You must be watching what's going on in the public markets very closely right now to see what kind of action happens with that. Well put. I want to ask you about the nature of these founders. Obviously, you want them to be ambitious and brilliant and all that stuff, all those attributes. For an insure tech, do you find that insurance savvy and background and knowledge is important or that can be bought or added to the team? What's your feeling on what it takes for that? Or I guess what I'm asking is, is that we ask frequently, do you consider yourself a tech company or, or an insurance service provider? And most frequently an insure tech will say, we're a tech company. So how do you balance that? What, what's your thoughts on that? I think that this is such a good question. And I think that absolutely you need tech and you need insurance. Do you need to have insurance in your founding team? I'd like it. I absolutely want it in your senior team. And I think that what we saw early on, and now I'm going all the way back to 2015, is there were founders who came in from the tech side who said, this is an easy problem. I don't know why people are making such a heavy weather of this. And then they found out about insurance regulation. And then they found out that that's different in each state. And I think that probably put many people into a situation where they suddenly had respect for someone who had more insight into the insurance markets. But what you're always looking for in that founding team or in that senior team is 
people who are from insurance, but who are not of insurance. So not someone who has drunk the Kool-Aid about this is the way we do it and this is the only way to do it, but rather someone who's been in the ecosystem for long enough to say, I understand how it works and I see the parts that don't work. And I think it, you are actually looking for someone unique in insurance who can both think, even if they're not thinking in a tech way, but who can think through the problems in insurance and help the whole team think through how to solve this problem in a way that is acceptable within the regulations. We had Cole Winans on from Flyreel, and they started you know, entirely different direction, entirely different idea, and they pivoted over to insurance. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you see that quite frequently, that that uh, people start in one direction and then they realize they have something that's applicable to insurance that they might have shortcut a lot of their pain if they would have known that previously or, or sooner. I think that's right. Martha, before we close out, I just had one question I wanted to ask you about VC. Where does the money come from that these VCs invest with? Do they get groups together and have large companies? Where Where is the money that you are investing with? Where does that come from? In general, the venture capital funds, and I'll speak sort of to the traditional funds, are getting their money from the investment groups at institutions, and those might be broadly financial institutions of various kinds. They might also be university endowments, for example. Uh -huh. Sovereign wealth has been a big contributor to both VC and private equity, as well as you know family offices, high net worth individuals. So I think that generally the funds have a spread of types of limited partners, but in each of these cases, what the limited partners are looking for is diversification within their own investment portfolios. Very interesting. Well, Martha, we're here at our time, but I still have so many more questions that I want to ask you, but I just want to say thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. It was fun to chat. Always a pleasure. And we're going to have you back. So don't think you're escaping. That's not how it works. I'll try to do some interesting <laughs> deals in the meantime. That sounds great. Thanks, Martha. Thank you. Hey, Lee. Yeah, Rob. There's some people that we get on the podcast that I feel like it's frankly a privilege to be able to have them on board and on our program. And Martha is one of them. Don't you agree? I absolutely agree. Whenever I knew Martha was going to be on today, I was very excited. We first got to know her back with an interview we did with Caribou, and she was so brilliant. I mean, Caribou was mm -hmm. as well, but she was so brilliant. And ever mm -hmm. since then, we've been told, oh, Martha? Yeah, I, I listened to the Martha episode. She's so great. Mm -hmm. And she didn't fail today. No, but you actually had the courage to ask her to tell us about <laughs> as she had deals that didn't work out. Well, I don't see the big deal about that. I mean, she could have easily said, I'm not going to answer that, but why yeah. not ask the question? You got to live no. a little bit on the edge, right? No, no. And she ended up saying to us later that every VC has a batting average and none of them is a thousand. Right. So it's common and, and that's what happens. And you focus in on wins and understand that there's going to be many that aren't. 
Yeah, and it sounds like she's had some wins and and some good ones, and and she's made such a great name in the industry. I I wish I could ask her even more. I went down a little bit of the path of what changes within a company, but I'd want to get her back on and really say, what are you looking for in a startup? How do you know that's the one? When we finished and we were talking about ITC and some other things. She told us about that, you know, she's been asked to speak here and speak there. And the fact of the matter is, is that Martha gets asked to speak at a lot of places because there's only one Martha. There's only one Martha. She's whatever hype that comes before her is all well-deserved. And we hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. And her insights and her thoughts are of value to you. And and if they are, please uh, subscribe and please let us know. We're always interested to know what our audience thinks, what they think of our program, what they think of our guests. Just any, any thought you may have, please share it with us. And we thank you for being with us today and thank Martha a thousand times for making the time to be with us. Did I leave anything out, Lee? Um, goodbye, everyone. There you go.